what is coming that is going to disrupt or change the way businesses organize and operate in the next decade. We found that there are some key drivers that are coming along that are gonna change every business's business model. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome back to Trends That Will Shape the Next Decade. This is part three in our three-part series discussing the Horizon Report from the Center for Information and Communication Sciences at Ball State University. This report identifies trends across three dimensions, technology, management and leadership, and business models. The report highlights the trends that are likely to have the most impact on the next decade. In this episode, we are going to dive into business models. And I've got to say, when I first saw this report, this was the one I was looking forward to the most. I think this is going to be a great conversation. We're joined again today by the authors of the Horizon Report, Dr. Dennis Trinkle, the director of CICS, and grad students Christopher Newham, Cyrus Green, and Paul Feria. Welcome back once again, guys. Good to be back. Let's go, Jeff. I'm still excited. <laughs> Very happy to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, this is going to be great. Uh, like I say, I've been looking forward to this aspect, this dimension of our conversation for quite some time. So we're going to jump right in. Dr. Trinkle, as we've done in the past, I'd love for you to provide some context on business model, on that dimension of this report. For our listeners, for a broader context on the report itself, episode one has some of that great uh, conversation with Dr. Trinkle. So Dr. Trinkle, a little bit of context for us. Absolutely, Jeff. So in prior episodes, we have looked at technology trends and changes in management and leadership practices. The other thing that we looked at in the Horizon Report was major trends in business models over the coming decade. So not just management and leadership changes, but really how businesses organize, how they operate in a global world, all of the different aspects of an operating model, what is coming that is going to disrupt or change the way businesses organize and operate in the next decade. We found that there are some key drivers that are coming along that are gonna change every business's business model. Um, and on one level, they stand on their own feet. On another level, they are closely tied to the technology trends and the management and leadership trends that we've already talked about. So I think we'll have a great conversation this afternoon. I think we will, too. As someone who has been studying, I'll, I'll use the phrase digital transformation, in a lot of ways, when you peel back the layers of digital transformation, it's really talking about looking at your business model and the changes that need to happen there to stay competitive. So let me identify the 10 trends, and then I'm going to ask each one of you in turn to talk about one that stood out for you. So for our listeners, the 10 trends that identified in the Horizon Report are rapid and accelerating pace and amount of change, global economic shifts, business model changes, the gig economy, talent attraction and developmental changes, increased focus on corporate responsibility, 
global politics and global threats, supply chain and manufacturing shifts, changing workplace demographics, and convergence. That is quite a list. Paul, I'm going to start with you and put you on the spot. Which one stands out to you? Yes, Jeff. So as we enter industry 4.0, as it is widely referred to, what stood out to me was supply chain and manufacturing shifts, mainly because the technology that is being leveraged in supply chain 4.0, as it's called, has wide ranging implications, whether you produce a physical product and a physical good, or you're strictly a software company, it doesn't matter. The implications are enormous. Um, and I just, I just want to give you a quick example. It's kind of an extreme example that might not necessarily apply to everybody, but it articulates why supply chain and manufacturing shift disruption is so huge. Um, and I'll, I'll start with an example that we have in the book, and it's GE Aviation. So what they've done is, let, let's paint the picture here and say, you've been to an airport, right? So you're at the airport, you're waiting for your flight, you're waiting to load on your flight, and you see all the airplanes on the tarmac either getting serviced or loading, ready to leave. Well, it costs airlines approximately $81 per minute every time an airplane is on the tarmac, not in the air. Um, similarly, with the trucking industry, drivers say that they spend anywhere from three to five hours on average at a shipping dock before the truck gets loaded and they're able to leave their next destination. That equates per driver, when you total up the numbers for the entire industry, to about $1 billion of lost revenue per year. So again, not everybody's in the aviation industry, not everybody's in the trucking industry, but here's what GE Aviation is doing to ameliorate that problem. What they've done is they've created what's called digital twins. So if you take a physical airplane engine, they've created a virtual rendering of that engine, an exact virtual replica to uh, perform diagnostics on the engine, be able to uh, predict and detect when maintenance is going to need to be completed on these engines. That way they can minimize the downtime on the physical airplane of when these engines will need to be serviced. So this huge step toward predictive analytics and making decisions on a daily, if not hourly basis based on real-time data that you have coming through, that's going to completely change the game regardless of industry because now you're not relying on strictly quarterly numbers to predict the next quarter or the year. You're relying on, like I said, hourly, daily numbers to predict the next day, the next week, the next month, and so on. So yeah, that <laughs> this really blew my mind. The pandemic, we have heard for, gosh, at least the last year, the supply chain, the supply yes. chain, the supply chain. Yes. What's the what's the overriding consensus of the people that you interviewed of how do we fix the supply chain for the next time we have a pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So just to lean on um, research and data that we accumulated, the pandemic created in it was a survey conducted by EY where they surveyed 200 CIOs and C C-suite level 
employees, 57% experienced serious and severe disruption, 72% experienced a negative effect of the pandemic on their supply chain. Uh, and yet 92% though did not halt uh, investment in technology. Only 2% said that they were ready and could handle the impact that COVID-19 had on the supply chain. And what that ultimately comes down to at its most fundamental level is a lack of awareness on how your company's spider web of companies and network and supply chain interacts. So unless you truly understand four, even five, six companies deep, how those companies and what happens in their business or their industry impacts your business, you are ultimately gonna be caught in a position if something like this were ever to happen again, where you could potentially be unprepared and not ready to pivot appropriately. I love that you called out, you know, four or five, six layers yeah. deep because it, it reminds me of a conversation that we had on Status Go with a CIO, Jamie Lee, when he talked about being aware of your customer's customer mm. and the impact. And, and it sounds like the same concept, but on the supply chain side of the coin. So thanks for pulling that out. Absolutely. Chris. What stood out for you in these 10 trends? Absolutely. And th this definitely touches on, on what Paul just iterated and I think certainly encompasses what we've, what we've talked about and discussed over the last two episodes. Uh, but it's the first disruptor of this section in business models, and that's a rapid and accelerating pace and amount of change. And this is a, obviously a significant, again, all-encompassing disruptor that, that really touches and, and uh, is pretty fluid across a lot of these boundaries. But what we've experienced, obviously, again, COVID exacerbated this trend. But from a digital perspective, uh, we've seen and experienced significant hike in, in pace of change uh, over the last decade. And the next decade is going to continue to increase. Just to put this in perspective and identify you know, a couple different devices or technologies we're all, we're all familiar with um, over the last 20 years uh, and comparing that to, to the, the bigger streak we can see um, using a, a data point of 50 million people. Within 14 years, 50 million people were using computers. Within 12 years, 50 million people were using mobile phones. Within seven years, 50 million people were using the internet. Within only three years, there were over 50 million people on Facebook. And within 19 days, 50 million people were actively using Pokemon Go when it came out a couple of years ago. Wow. And you can wow. imagine yeah. that pace of change from something as uh, as complex within 14 years of computers to something as simple that we're all aware of, a mobile app on your phone that, that spread across at a global capacity, 19 days and 50 million users. I think those data points really put in perspective the not only the speed, right, but the, the amount of change that is consistently happening. Now, switching that moment into you know, a business model perspective, this this. Um, you know, this section outlines how are businesses actively engaging not only their customer base again, but their employees? How are they able and actively ready to respond to change when it's happening all the time? You know, we saw incredible disruption with, with COVID and, and in, some, in some capacity, it was hours that companies were switching to remote work or switching into different business models. How does that apply post-pandemic? How does that apply when we have different forms of, of exterior uh, implications that are, that are impacting a company? So again, it, this rapid and accelerating pace of change is only increasing. It's only going to continue to accelerate over the next decade. And I think many businesses are experiencing that today. 
I loved when I read this that you tied together the pace of change and the amount of change. Talk to us a little bit, Chris, why as a research group, you tied those two concepts together. Absolutely. So let's focus on pace of change first. You know, many companies are, are prepared in some cases are readily uh, active in, in anticipating innovation. Uh, they're a part of those of those cornerstones, right? They're building into their industry. Uh, and so they're, they're very comfortable with the pace. They know that change is happening rapidly. Uh, they're aware they're able to, to be mobile and agile in, in how those pieces fit together. When we take in the amount into consideration, when it's not only um, happening every single day, but when it's six, seven, a hundred changes happening in 24 hours, you know, let's look at day one of of, of pandemic when uh, when we all saw the sports NCAA started closing down basketball games, right? And then it just was a domino effect of big institutions following following suit. We all, you know, many people anticipated that the, the change was going to happen. There was going to be that pace significantly boosting. But when it happened in 24 hours, when the amount was, you know, pretty incredible in an instant, you can imagine, you know, we, we experienced a disruption from a business model perspective. Businesses have, you know, structures and safeguards in place to anticipate and be on the front side of change to be actively engaging in it. But not many businesses are actively prepared to really uh, engage and, uh, and in some cases get on that, on that wagon when it's a significant amount of change happening at a rapid pace. And I think the last 12 months are testament to significant changes that have in some cases impeded the company's ability to, uh, to, to really act. I mean, a report from McKinsey um, that we highlighted in, in, our, in the Horizon report estimated that change right now is happening 10 times faster and at 300 times the scale than it was at the Industrial Revolution. That is a pretty significant, again, a pretty significant jump, but those two pieces are, are distinct and highlighted separately, and they should be. That was 10 times faster and three, what was the second? 300, 300 times 100? the scale than the rate of I the I thought that's revolution. what you said. <laughs> that's just, that. I, I tell people all the time that I think uh, today is the most exciting time to be involved in technology because of this rapid pace of change. But man, it's also the scariest sure. <laughs> because of this rapid pace of change. Uh, thanks for highlighting that that area for us, Chris. Cyrus, what, what area stands out to you? Uh, sure. So I think to the surprise of none of the other guests on this episode, I was very much drawn to global politics and global threats. Uh, <laughs> I should have guessed that one. I should have guessed. You probably could have. And in, in the first episode, uh, when we spoke on technology, uh, really, just the, an overwhelming amount of our of our industry experts spoke on cybersecurity threats as an emergent technology trend, uh, and it was just as represented, just as as mentioned when we talked about business models and the way that you know, cybersecurity would be influencing shaping those business models. Uh, really, so in this section of of global politics and threats, we focused on two pieces: uh, climate change and cybersecurity. So for the climate change, uh, I'll defer to Chris there. He is certainly the climate change expert of the group. Uh, but from a cybersecurity perspective, uh, I think really the, the intersection of politics and threats crystallized with that May White House executive order uh, on cybersecurity. Uh, just to add some, some background and context to that, that was in the immediate aftermath of the now infamous Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. And what that executive order did was introduce sweeping uh, new requirements, cybersecurity requirements across the federal government. 
as well as vendors that work with and for the federal government. And I think it's tempting to uh, see that as a government-specific change and and shift. Um, but that's I think it's, it's a mistake to view it that way. Uh, these requirements are actively taking hold in the public space, uh, and I think they are just as just as strongly going to be reflected and implemented by leading businesses. These requirements and standards uh, will be imposed and become the norm for vendors and business partners in the private sector as well. Uh, so when you talk about you know what the executive order encompassed from data encryption to multi-factor authentication to securing software development, securing supply chains, these are all uh, extremely critical facets of, of an evolving business model that will continue to shape how organizations are are maintained. And uh, at, a, at a broader scale, I think that security is going to become a distinguishing factor in the marketplace uh, that organizations, uh, again, really use to, to separate, differentiate themselves. And, and how will they use security as a differentiator? What, what types of things do you mean by that, Cyrus? Sure. So at a, at a tactical level, what I mentioned, you know, those pieces I mentioned that the executive order itself mandates for the federal government, uh, being comfortable and really establishing uh, yourself as an organization, as a leader of implementing those changes, of championing those cybersecurity best practices uh, will, again, indicate to partners that your organization is serious and uh, proficient in, in securing their, their relationship, their operations. Uh, but I think, again, to, to your question, uh, actually, Jeff, could you repeat the question? Well, as you were talking about this, you mentioned differentiators. And if I am in competition with other companies in my industry, what what aspects would you look at as a differentiator when it comes to security? Yep. Thank you for the reminder. So here's the differentiator. Oh, sure, sure. Here's the differentiator, Jeff. It's moving from a minimal viable product to a more secure product. Uh, Just a, a, a paradigm shift of what your organization offers, their philosophy on security. That's the differentiation. That's what distinguishes you and provides a competitive advantage. And that may seem counterintuitive from a budgetary or a financial perspective, but it really does pay dividends. And in our report, uh, we even, you know, I identified an interesting struggle between uh, funding, you know, allocating resources and security needs. And at the end of the day, it, it truly does pay off when you are looking at investing into a, a robust cybersecurity team and capability and uh, paying a large significant ransom after your organization is, is compromised. I love that because so many times we don't take security seriously enough. And one of the things that, that CIOs struggle with all the time is that whether they have a chief information security officer on staff or whether that falls to the, the CIO, they a lot of times feel like it's their problem and their problem only. I love that you have raised this to the level of an impact on the business model of an organization to keep their assets secure, keep their customers' uh, data assets secure. And I think that's an amazing concept to raise to such a level. What did you see in the research that said, yes, this is going to impact business models going forward? Yeah, it absolutely is uh, transitioning from, like you said, the perception that this is a, a siloed, segmented issue that one leader or 
division needs to be responsible for to a holistic uh, top-down responsibility for security. And to your question, our research across the board indicated that I think uh, first, just from, from the breadth of respondents that outline this as a priority, it is no longer the domain of, of a McAfee uh, antivirus provider. These are small business owners, uh, CEOs we spoke to, to nonprofits we spoke to, truly organizations and leaders in every industry imaginable outlined uh, a newfound responsibility, focus and pivot towards security. And that's going to manifest in really a baked in business model that prioritizes it. The way I put it, it's almost that, that if you think about it, as, as you hold organizations accountable for uh, the software they're offering, the security and integrity that's built into the software they offer, as just an example, uh, really every company is going to become to some degree a security company. And the hope from there is that the, you know, the security that's, that's built into the client facing environment will translate then to the behind the scenes day to day operations of that organization so that there truly is layered defense in depth architecture across the board, again, baked into that business model. Jeff, I was just going to tie that in, what Cyrus said to even the supply chain, where it isn't strictly just, hey, so, you know, Target, for example, gets hacked and everybody's credit card information is exposed. No, it, it, it goes deeper than that, because when we talk about even, like I said, supply chain and all the digital sensors and, hey, what are the inventory levels within the truck and how quickly can we unload and offload and, and predictive analytics all of those things now, all that software and all that digital data, if you will, is susceptible to hacking, is susceptible at every level of the pipeline or supply chain, if you will. So to, to Cyrus's point, we've talked about before how every every company is a technology company. Every company now is is a cybersecurity company as well. So, mm-hmm. And I wanted, wanted to add on there, you mentioned ecosystem, Paul, when you're discussing uh, supply chain disruption. And then Cyrus and I have worked in a, in a couple different capacities and, and discussed this certainly in depth. When you think about the ecosystem of any large tech company or any company for that matter, it, it does go that four, five, six, seven layers deep in, in terms of security, but in, just in terms of, of business organization and structure. And if I'm a business and I'm thinking about pairing with you, Jeff, and doing business with you at a professional level, and you don't have security at the top of mind when we're having a conversation, that can significantly Mm -hmm. impact the future of our organizations working together. Though from a business model perspective, really reinforcing Cyrus's point and, and certainly touching on Paul's as well, it does impact that greater scheme, that greater ecosystem if you don't have a reputation for being a security company. If you don't have that reputation of being and having a secure product or service, not only your customers can rely on, but your business partners and your business affiliates yeah. in your ecosystem can rely on. That's an incredible point. And I think it leads right back to your, your question, Jeff, of distinguishing and differentiating to Chris's point there. That is, that's the competitive advantage. And security is, is and will continue to be uh, a driver of that advantage. Yeah, I just think this is one of the most important things facing us as technologists today is how do we bring security and bring it so that it's baked in from the beginning. Mm. So thanks for highlighting that one, Cyrus. Okay, Dr. Trinkle, you know, the last two times I've put you on the spot, I'm not going to do that this time. 
because I'm going to put you all on the spot after you, <laughs> after Dr. Trinkle shares his top trend. So uh, Dr. Trinkle, uh, what trend do you want to share with us? Sure. So I, I am going to go with the, the importance of changing demographics. Uh, and I think absolutely difficult to overstate the importance of changing demographics, both for businesses and who the employees are going to be over the coming decade, and also thinking about the markets and how the markets are going to change, both globally, but especially for U.S. and North American markets. We are already seeing significant demographic shifts, and this this works on a number of levels. So um, the data from the most recent census has started to come out, and some of the headlines have included that Below the age of 25, the U.S. is now no longer a Caucasian majority marketplace. Under the age of 25, we are now already what were, what were historically minority groups, um, seeing them in the long projected ascendancy. That is going to have a major impact on a lot of levels, both in terms of employees and in terms of addressable markets. We're also seeing a different shift in terms of age and cohort and cultural assumptions with the gradual phasing out of the workplace of the baby boomers and the ascendance of the millennials who are now the largest working group within the workforce. I see Paul giving props to his generation. So that's terrific. Um, Both the consumer side and with employees, we've already talked about this in some other categories, but we're going to see shifts in business model and business practice driven by those generational shifts, right? That there is a different sense of what a company ought to be about, a greater sense of social responsibility, uh, of importance of purpose in the millennial generation, uh, both in terms of where they want to work and the kind of companies they want to buy f- from. So you're going to see a lot of changes that are driven, prompted by um, the the ascendancy of the millennials and generations coming behind them into work into the workforce. Another close correlate of that would be that millennials have also been raised to to challenge authority and to expect to be involved in collaborative conversations, not just to stitch into hierarchical processes and hierarchical leadership structures. And that is not a bad thing at all. Um, (laughs) You will often hear in in workplaces these days battle between boomers who say, why do these millennials just expect so much? Why aren't they willing to wait their turn? And ironically, the boomers aren't listening very closely because that's not what the millennials are saying at all. The millennials are simply saying, why is it done this way? Um, is it still yeah. the best decision for us to do it the way we've always done it? Mm-hmm. Have you thought about this perspective? May I contribute another viewpoint? They're not saying I won't stitch into you know collaborative decision making or I intend to be disrespectful. They are just going to make sure that businesses are more collaborative spaces, that perspectives are being heard. Um, and that connects directly to this whole point of changes in demographics, uh, whether it's age cohorts or the ethnicity and background of the workforce and the market, those are going to drive changes in every direction. So Mm -hmm. I I think that that in tie to the other factors that we've been talking about is the one that I'm going to single out this afternoon. You sound like one of us, Dr. Trinkle. Wow. Hey. <laughs> nice. 
see us boomers, we can learn. We can learn. So, Dr. Trinkle, I also found it pretty interesting uh, when you look at this section of the report, changing workplace demographics as a trend. This also appeared similar language under leadership and management trends. Uh, tie those together for us just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So so the thread, there's certainly a thread from management into business model, but I think we chose to include it in both places because on the one hand, if you are a leader or a manager in an organization, you are going to have to be aware of these shifts and what they mean. You're going to have to develop a broader range of cultural sensitivities. You're going to have to become a much better listener to be able to develop that range of cultural sensitivities. You're going to have to be aware of the shifts in age cohort expectations um, and what that means both internally and externally. But we wanted to stress that it's much more than that. It's it, This is going to be about more than just having savvy, agile leaders who are culturally sensitive on multiple levels. This is really going to fundamentally reshape a number of business practices, right? So because yep. of the cultural value, just take a couple of examples, cultural values of, um, of new age generations, you're going to see new business models coming into play. Um, the, the rise of the gig economy is not just driven by technology enabling us to, to set up individualized bases and tap into distributed just-in-time supply chain. It's about cultural values and what the millennials value, the kind of organizations that they want to be part of, and the expectation that's been set by them, by their parents and educators since they were in the womb of, if you don't like an organization's values, you don't have to remain a part of it. Go out and start your mm -hmm. own. Um, right? Always try constructively first to help adapt and to grow the culture. But then that, when that doesn't work, don't ever feel like you need to be stuck. Go create that organization, right? So we've been telling millennials that for 30 years and they're doing it. They're going out and creating organizations so that they can create organizations that have different DNA, that have different cultural values, expectations, ways of operating. And that's what we wanted to capture here is this is not just about management and leadership. This is going to be at the DNA level about the way businesses organize and operate and what their cardinal culture and value is. I love that because as I mentioned at the outset, this, this section was one that I was really looking forward to discussing because I think we are on the verge of this major shift in business models. Now, I warned you a little bit ago that I was going to put you all on the spot because Hey, I'm the one with the cool microphone. I get to do that, right? <laughs> so here, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I, I'm going to name one of the other trends that we didn't talk about. And I would just love your thoughts. I'm not going to call on anybody. So whoever has the thought, just jump in uh, on that particular area and feel free to, to add to what somebody else says, okay? So Dr. Trinkle actually mentioned this one just a moment ago. And it's one that I've been particularly interested in the gig economy. Who has some thoughts on that trend? I'll, I'll jump in really quickly here. So when you, when you think of the gig economy, and again, Dr. Trinkle, you certainly iterated some some high-level pieces of it. Uh, not only this demographic change of uh, individuals that are our age being told to go and do it yourself or create the structure you want to succeed in and don't accept the, the norm at a different organization, right? So outside of, of those pieces, um, we see this this shift to to freelance employment 
or temporary work, if you will. There is a certainly a market, and I, I think, again, as we've said before, we've seen this throughout the last 12 months, uh, where we have a rise of entrepreneurs. COVID was a breeding ground for small businesses, startups, and entrepreneurs to really market their products. Many folks identified what they were offering and doing in their full-time nine to five at, at their in their career. They also have a, a secondary skill set, a subset of skills that can be actively leveraged and marketed for, for a profit. And so the gig economy in a lot of different ways is really that temporary employment or strictly skills-based endeavors uh, where we see folks recognizing they have value. Jeff, yourself, we, we met through a conversation that was focused mm-hmm. in, in your business on networking, how to find and, and start your career at any mm-hmm. point in your career. You have acquired you know those skills over the course of, of your life, and now you're actively applying them. And for me, that's a, a small marketing business on the side outside of, of being a grad student. And my point being, uh, there are these secondary skill sets that many folks have identified and they've recognized now is a great time and place and environment to capitalize on those secondary skills and to really pivot toward them. And we also see outsourcing as a, as a, as a primary indicator here. Many organizations don't either have the resources or the, the capacity uh, to, to do something in-house. And oftentimes it's more affordable, but they also open themselves up to a different pool of talent if they outsource, let's say, a video project or a specific requirement for a, mm-hmm. for a type of contract work. Um, so I think that's, a, again, a fairly high level. And I'm curious if, if my colleagues here want to add to that in any capacity. I would say to that too, especially, you know, you look and Chris, you just touched on this video production. It used to be um, as recent as 10 years ago, you're doing a project and you've got this $500 monstrosity of a camera that you're walking around with $600 camera that you're taking around with you. And, you know, whether it's doing somebody's wedding or doing a, a sports bride, it doesn't matter there were these prohibitive costs that were associated with, hey, I need an, I need a studio with $20,000 of equipment to record a podcast. And now mm-hmm. we're sitting here on our laptops. Um, you can take your iPhone, you can take your laptop, and you can pump out a professional quality video. Many times you'll see those iPhone commercials. So uh, to your point with these secondary skills, I think that I would even take it one step further and say if, if you're a large organization, people, not everybody's wired to be an entrepreneur out in the open on their own, but there are definitely varying levels of creativity and ulterior skills other than just primary job function. How can you leverage your people's inclination to create or to innovate or to think through problems and leverage that in-house so that they don't have to leave and do their own business, but actually improve your company? That's, That's my two cents on that. And if, if I may also j- jump back and, and, and pull in, for, you know, strictly for the business model perspective, let's take Uber as a perfect example. Uh, yeah. We, you know, recognize the taxi industry over the last decade. Uh, there's a, a couple different levels of uncomfortability for the customer and the consumer in that perspective. Safety and security is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, availability and convenience of hailing somebody down and and uh, engaging them on the side of the road. And also cash transactions. Yeah. Is it safe for me to walk into a vehicle? I've never seen this person. I have no idea. Right. So there's a couple different layers. Uber recognized and lifted the same thing. They recognized a lack of customer centric experience and they built their entire business model on a set of part-time gig workers. 
This is a global company that is capitalized and in their stocks prove it, uh, the value of looking at an industry and where they can improve. Now you have a cashless transactions. You can see ratings on who your driver is going to be and you can hail them directly to where you're at and you can even schedule those rides earlier. So thinking about gig economy to my previous point, it's not strictly those secondary skill sets, right? But it's also entire business models that are shifting to recognize the value of having an, a really an employee base of, of you know, part-time individuals that work at their own leisure and support a, a structure that needs it. Thanks for jumping in on that. Cyrus, Dr. Trinkle, anything to add before I throw out one more? So I'll, I'll add one thing, which may be a bridge to one of the, the trends you wanted to pull out and maybe not. I, I will say there... There is a push-pull dimension with the gig economy that's tied closely to talent attraction and development, right? So we talked in an earlier episode about the, the real talent shortage that already exists across the United States um, in IT and IT-enabled fields, and that is only going to sharpen over the coming decade. And I think a lot of millennials and, and boomers as well in Encore careers are discovering that their skills are so in demand that they can have a better lifestyle and earn a better living if they work in a series of projects for the different enterprises that need those skills at a point in time than if they go to work as a, as a staff member for any one organization, right? And so this mm-hmm. is fueled by the fact that almost everything breaks into a project. You can, mm-hmm. you can compartmentalize almost all work that's done in an organization and, and truly operational roles are a different thing. But for all of that work that can be packetized into a specific deliverable with a specific timeline, that lends itself really well to gig economy approaches. And when you think about the talent shortages, there's this huge pull from businesses to be able to tap into that talent and, and individuals are discovering that and not just acting individually, but putting together consortia, development collaboratives, and so forth to be able to tap into that demand and create a better living and lifestyle for themselves. Yep. Yep. So you were anticipating maybe what my next one was going to be. So again, I'm going to throw another curveball since you took that one, uh, Dr. Trinkle, and I'm going to throw out convergence. What is that? And what's the, what's the trend there? So any thoughts from anybody on the, in the group? Sure. At a basic level, um, I think in each of the three episodes, you've heard one or all of us indicate just how interconnected these disruptors truly are uh, beyond you know their initial uh, segmentation of technology, management and leadership, and now business models, really you know within and also weaving across those three those three layers and creating uh, again a decade of just unprecedented change, unprecedented disruption. Um, and I think that the dynamics and the degree to which each of these disruptors play off of each other and build uh, won't be linear. It won't be predictable, and it's it's going to vary. So there are a few disruptors that I think better capture the way to navigate that. Uh, I would go back to uh, Paul speaking on agile leadership in the last episode uh, and really just that mindset of adaptability to, again, navigate and roll with the punches as the decade unfolds and unleashes again just never before seen rates of, of change and yeah. and disruption i'd be happy to hear uh, any of you build on that yeah 
100 cyrus man you said earlier deconstructing traditional standards i believe this was in the last episode and the way you have to look at it and this kind of ties into one of our other disruptors business model changes but um carrie sims the vice president at hitachi ventara said that you know they used to produce and manufacture trains and then they'd either sell them or rent them to various governments then that government whoever purchased the train would be responsible for maintenance would be responsible for all those costs associated with getting that train going and now they do trains as a service. So it's a subscription-based model for a train, right? Where they've got the sensors on the train. They, they can do predictive maintenance and proactive maintenance. And so when we look at convergence, that's kind of a microcosm of the bigger picture here where yeah. we're saying, look, all these technologies and all these things kind of come together where whatever business you're in, you can't just think of, hey, this is our one way of doing it. It's how can these technologies or how can these shifts be leveraged in how we currently do things to move forward and kind of rewrite those standards that Cyrus again mentioned in the last episode? Yeah, pulling pulling these pieces in, if I may, and I think I'll have Dr. Tringolo the last word given the, the, the space and some of his emphasis he's had during the research. Um, but when, when we pair random combinations um, and any really any combinations of the disruptors that are mentioned, all 30 of them throughout the entirety of this book, uh, it really changes not only our ability to anticipate whatever those potential or theoretical outcomes may be, but it completely disrupts that formula. When you take AI machine learning and add in a secondary workforce change, it really mm. changes how a business may or ha must react in the future. And a part of the, the report in this specific section I want to highlight is something uh, that, that's coined the, the, the cone of possibilities, if you will. And so imagine a, a large a large cone on, on, a, on a landscape form. Uh, the, the largest cone is, is essentially all possible outcomes. So anything that, that could or may happen will happen. And it's a, it's a, pretty, a pretty expansive piece. Uh, so we call this the most probable cone, uh, really what we would identify as um, the, the, I'm sorry, the second cone, the inner one is the most probable, right? So you have your large cone with all possibilities. The second smaller cone is the most probable. So what we, what we you know, what want to happen, right? And then the, um, uh, the, the smallest, tiniest cone is always known as the preferred cone. When you think of convergence and you bring all of these disruptors that we've mentioned and pull them together and articulate them in various ways, that cone of possibilities significantly widens. It becomes larger and larger every time you add a new disruptor on. Uh, so you know, all those pieces together, we really see an opportunity for, for you know, various future uh, dilemmas and opportunities to arise out of the convergence of these various disruptors. Anything to, to add, Dr. Trinkle, or did they, uh, did they say it well? <laughs> they definitely said it well, Jeff, but I, I, know, I know that you are a lover of history, so I'll add a historical perspective. Um, and the historical perspective is that innovation almost always happens at the intersection of different technologies, tools, disciplines, perspectives. And so... When we put together this trend from the comments that we received, part of it was about the recognition that each of these trends together has a multiple effect, right? So you get to exponential change and exponential impact. Uh, but we also intended it as a reminder of opportunities, right? So organizations that go and go out and think about the problem they're trying to solve 
and then how these different trends come together to intersect at what they're interested in is going to show them the best path forward in terms of innovation. And to, to use the language that Chris was using, help them define what their kind of possibilities are, right? And we are entering, we are already living in, we're going to be even more living in an environment shaped by all of the trends we've now talked about across the three episodes. Um, and one could focus on just one aspect, one of those trends and try to innovate there. But you're going to have a competitor out there that's looking at the intersection of three of the trends and is going to leapfrog ahead of even what you're thinking of. So it's really mm -hmm. a first order challenge for us to be able to think truly at a strategic level and what the possibilities are, what's our cone of possibilities when we pull together mm -hmm. all of these trends. And it's, a, it's, as you said, it's a wonderful time to be alive. There's so much innovation yeah. possibility and that innovation is going to happen at the intersection of these trends. The, the imagery of that response from, from all of you is just uh, amazing. Thank you for that. I'm going to throw one more curveball at our audience this time, okay, so you guys can relax. <laughs> Rather than having each one of our guests leave you with a call to action, I'm going to leave you with a call to action. I don't know that I've ever done that on this, on this program before, but here's your call to action to our listeners. Read the book. It's amazing. I believe uh, it's available on Amazon. And didn't you say it was the whopping price of 99 cents? It is. It, it's the same price as a drink at McDonald's. So hopefully more satisfying. <laughs> and, and much better for you. In all seriousness, to our listeners, go to Amazon, grab this book and read it. All of these trends are impacting each and every one of us every day, whether you know it or not. And you'd be better off if you know it, because then you can react to it. Guys, I want to thank you. This has been an amazing discussion. I knew it would be. And uh, I really appreciate you carving out the time to, to meet with us, not once, not twice, but three times. Really do appreciate it. So thank you, guys. Thank you again for the opportunity, Jeff. It's been great. Always great talking with you, Jeff. And, and always good to be on a screen with these three gentlemen. <laughs> I would agree with that as well. I would agree with that as well. It's always a good time. Thank you, Jeff. I think I said this off the air, so I'm going to say it on the air. You all should be very proud of this body of work. This is a great piece of research and one that will benefit a lot of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for that. Awesome. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, read the book. Visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links to the report and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Dr. Dennis Trinkle, Chris Newhan, Cyrus Green, and Paul Feria. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.